Hey, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy, and I love buying my comics at Meltdown Comics, and I know you do too, so I'm going to give you a little gift, and that gift is a discount. So if you use my password, which is going to be Pod Sequentialism Rocks, to any of the employees that work here at checkout, they will give you a discount on your comics. How much is that discount? 11%. Can't beat that with a bag of hammers. Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am, of course, your host Matt Kennedy, and uh, this is a really, this is actually a really exciting um, podcast for me today. And as a result of our interview with Sunny Lou, um, Sunny's publicist got in touch with us and asked us if we'd be at all interested in talking to Marxy Danielewski. And I thought immediately that um that mason had given me the wrong name i'm like well of course of course we would we would want to talk to mark because i'd read house of leaves and was a huge fan and um and was aware that there was this cycle of, of books that he was working on called the familiar and so um it's really rare i think generally in life to be able to just do something that you love to do and for that to lead to having the conversations with people that you always wanted to talk to anyways. So I'm going to welcome to, to the program, um, Marksy Danielewski. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is amazing. I'm just going to like kiss your ass for like the first like 20 minutes or so because there's just a lot of great stuff to talk to. This is a classic example of the person that I'd like to have a beer with being here in the studio and we can go do that afterwards if you like. But... Um, I know that you've got this um, Honeysuckle and Pain has, is just going to be hitting pretty soon. This is the third volume of the Familiar series. And you actually just saw it right now because it's, it's sitting here on the table. I did. So. You, I have not seen that copy. It was, it was quite, quite breathtaking for me and, <laughs> and painful for me and, yeah. and, uh, and aromatic for me. When I saw it, I was like, wait a minute, is, is that the dummy book? Because one of the parts of the process is that they'll create a dummy book that shows you the exact size, the yeah. kind of, some of the pages are, are duplicated a bunch of times. So I've seen that and I looked at it and I was like, oh wow, it's real. And you know, I've done this a few times, Yeah, but it's still an astonishing moment. I mean, you probably saw it. Yeah. You saw like, I was kind of looking at the studio <laughs> and both of you guys. And then suddenly I was like, oh my God. Is this it? it? It's, yeah. It's my child, you know? <laughs> and now, and now to, to give you some amazing geek credential here is that before Mark even came into the, the podcasting studio to sit down, he asked us if we actually worked here at Meltdown, which is where we record, because he was... It was very important to you that you find out if the latest issue of Saga was out yet. That is true. So you're you're a comic book fan. I'm up to book five. Yes, and in fact, I'm almost finished Sonny Lou's book as well. Yeah. And uh, that's an impressive feat unto itself. Yeah. So, um, and I'm a huge uh, Lone Wolf and Cub fan. I've mm -hmm. read I've read that series actually now three times through. Wow. And I'm reading the new Lone Wolf and Cub. Not sure about it yet, but the uh, the drawing is um, illustrations are are amazing. So when I was running um, Panic House Entertainment and my focus was Japanese exploitation and Japanese classic um, action cinema, we were offered the um, the Lone Wolf and Cub series, and it had already come out a few times. And this was right as the DVD business was starting to prepare for a huge dive. Mm -hmm. And so um, we we decided against it, which is probably the right the right decision, but a little piece of me died. And I had actually wanted to do a special edition disc that would have been Shogun Assassin, you know, right. the American cut with the American music, which condenses like three films down into a 190 minute feature, 88 minute feature. And the films, you know, un unexpurgated as like a special edition. And I figured that, hey, if they like the panic, um, the, 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 um, the pinky violence stuff that I was doing, that obviously they would have loved that. And we looked at Hands of the Razor and some of the other series as well. But um, so very well versed in that stuff. I've only seen a few of the films, actually. I mean, mm -hmm. mostly it's just the, uh, the, the manga mm -hmm. all the way through. But I have heard that... Darren Aronofsky is a huge fan yeah. and and had wanted to make it into a movie. And, you know, it's one of those things where you're, you you kind of perplex over, if, if you can say it that way. Just yeah. like, could it be done? Because part of its pleasure is 
in that it's not realized that that you know the the graphic novel still asks you to imagine yeah what's happening still connect those dots and that's that interactivity is something that that I've always loved and actually happens in my books because there's a there's a sort of there's a typographical graphic yeah. element yeah I mean one of the things that if if people are are familiar with with what you do um, very evident in House of Leaves and the other things that you've done are the unusual page layout and style, the different font treatments for different people's uh, narrative. Um, sometimes there'll be a page that has maybe five or six words on it. Yep. And um, when people were, when the news of the acclaim that House of Leaves was getting was starting to reach you. And I mean, it wasn't like it was even your first success because it was your second book and your first book was nominated for a National Book Prize. No, no, no. House of Leaves was the first. Was the first book. Yes. Okay. And yeah. the second book gets nominated for um, a a National Book Award. That's right. And House of Leaves is becoming this, it's still selling. It's becoming bigger and bigger and bigger. People are calling you the new Thomas Pynchon. And, um, and the narrative style is somewhat unlike anything that had come before and that's that's definitely a milestone in publishing if you can do something and people look at it and say we've never seen this before and we love it it's kind of the um well it's a best case scenario of course but it's just you, you just never see this happen it's not something that generally happens um in someone's lifetime you know you go back and you look at the william Burroughs stuff and how that was very changed it very changed the landscape of of the literary world. Of course, you have the very famous um, skewering of of um, the some of the early beat stuff when Aldous Huxley called on the road, um, typing, not writing. And you know, after these things become very acclaimed, and you get to really play games and literary games and um, narrative games with how you you set up a story, um, then the meta footnotes and the copious footnotes that you have in in the stuff that you write adds a whole other level of enjoyment, but they're, they're books within books. Right. Well, I think, I mean, it's hard for me to uh, address all of that because I, you know, I, I, I think, I think as much as can be said outside of a project, when you're inside it, it has a very different look and feel. And I think anyone who's a creator understands that it's, mm -hmm. it's the same as how you can look at a map and recognize all the locations as being familiar, mm -hmm. but it doesn't compare to when you're actually out there in the wild, you know, yeah. moving across that little little part. And um, so for me, House of Leaves was this, you know, very strange experience in that I had um, I had not published anything. I had not been granted any of the assurances that some writers get, you know, from from institutions or other writers that right. they in fact are on the right track. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my, my father before he died was so concerned that he wanted me to join the post office. You know, there were plenty of friends who were like, when are you going to get a real job? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was one thing if I was caught reading, you know, Milton or, you know, like some of the, the authors you just mentioned, like whether it was Burroughs or Kerouac or, you know, whomever. But if I was also on a couch reading like Lone Wolf and Cub or something like that, then mm -hmm. it was like, oh, you really need to grow up, dude. Yeah. You know? And so it was this really this strange kind of confluence of impulse, of desire, at the same time as it was kind of confronting the resistances that were surrounding me. And one of the major ones is, is sort of like the form of any of any art, I suppose, is that you must paint within a certain border of the canvas or you must write in a way that fits a, a volume and looks the way such words look in such a volume. Be creative, but do it within these confines. Exactly. Yeah. So my own resistance was kind of like, well, you know, I, I, I still like image and I, and I, you know, I was the son of a filmmaker, so I had this sense of, of how text could be used cinematically to accelerate the reading process, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and at the same time, when I was, you know, finishing House of Leaves, I was a, a plumber's apprentice. And, you know, I was listening to, I was getting an education in punk rock music from the guy who was on my crew who was a heroin addict. Um, and, and where was this? Where were you living at the time? This was here. And I, in and LA. It, and it's funny because a lot of this, these 
these moments are rushing back to me right now mm -hmm. because just a few buildings east of us on the yeah. south side, there used to be a private tattoo parlor where some of the guys would go to get their sleeves done. Mm -hmm. And I was hanging out there and a lot of the moments from Johnny Truant's, um, you know. Tattoo's Apprentice. Exactly. Yeah. Took place in that space. In mm -hmm. fact, the the one that a lot of people know is that sense of something is right behind you, and yeah. you have to turn around. and And some of the eeriness was explored in that studio. Yeah. So I can rem I'm suddenly here, and I'm remembering vividly all the ink and yeah. the little wads of of cotton with blood. The and, smell you know. of that cleaner, the soap that you wash tattoos with, which is like you know I can go years between getting any work done, and then the second that bottle gets open, it's like ah, oh, I'm like I'm back there, and it, it's just such a specific memory. Exactly. Yeah. And it's at, and at the same time, of course, it's also something that, that interested me in in that it was this exploration of image, of permanence, mm. of communication. You know, we get we get we get tattoos to remember things, but we also get tattoos to communicate things, yeah. you know, to tell other people who we are or tell them how we want them to think we are, even though we know we're not that person anymore. Even if it's not tribal, it's tribal. Yes. You know, exactly. that it's like when people get, whether, you know, you're, you're getting Woodstock from, you know, Peanuts, you know, tattooed or whether you're getting, um, you know, um, yeah, elaborate, Maori, Celtic. elaborate stuff yeah, or Celtic exactly. stuff that, that it's, it's sending that signal that you are part of a tribe, that this image signals to you, your, um, recognition and membership too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Now, um, in talking, you know, you mentioned your dad and, um, so Tad, and I'm guessing that the Z in your name is big new as well. Can't tell you that. Can't tell me that. Okay. I'll tell you, I will tell you the, the, the true story there which is when I was around 10 years old, I swore I would not tell anyone my middle name until I got married. Gotcha. And I am engaged. So I finally might tell, uh, you know, this marvelous woman what my middle name is and that'll be it. She'll say, I'm sorry, I, I, I've got to get a divorce. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ahead the other side of the aisle now. It's over. Well, um, you mentioned your dad was, was a filmmaker and he was an avant-garde filmmaker from Poland. He was originally from Poland. Yeah, he was... Uh, Whatever his pre-American history was devastated by World War II. He mm -hmm. was, you know, he was caught up when uh, he was a teenager when the Germans invaded. Ended up in a camp. Um, eventually made his way to the UK, where he didn't speak a word of English, but memorized phonetically the "to be or not to be" soliloquy from Hamlet, and managed to get into RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and wow. that put him on the road to. A world, uh, you know, a life in um, in theater and, and film. So it's shocking to me that he would have recommended that you get a job at the post office. Whereas my father, who did work at the post office, was also completely nonplussed by my interest in literature and, and and music and those types of things as well. You know, I think as I get older, I think he just he wanted security. I yeah. think as you get older, you start to see how how difficult it is. You yeah. know, can you can you maintain yourself in your older years? Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, and I think if you know, I can imagine now more completely how harrowing it must be to be a man who's who's dying, who sees his kid who's in his 20s, mm -hmm. you know, which I think as most men recognize, it's a pretty hard period. You know, yeah. when you're in your 20s, you're struggling. You, you, you haven't figured out who you are. You haven't figured out where you can sort of, you know, make a name for yourself yeah. or even find a nice place to sort of hang out. And uh, there's no question he picked up how how troubling that was for me. And, um, you know, it's always a, it's a little bit of sadness that, uh, that he never got to see, you know, House of Leaves come out. And mm -hmm. when Only Revolutions was nominated for um, a National Book Award, it had probably one of the fanciest galas I've ever been to. I will ever go to actually <laughs> in a literary sense. You know, right, it is, right. It is the Oscars of, of that world. Something on a cloud atlas. Yeah. I mean, the other awards, there are bigger ones, but they just tell you you won. On this, mm. you're actually, there's five of you. You're sitting in a room. You're all at elaborate tables paid for by your publisher. And I did have that moment where I felt sort of the ghost of my father on mm -hmm. my shoulder and just kind of putting his hand on my shoulder saying, you know, it doesn't really matter, but, you know, this is pretty cool. Yeah. And now was, was that back in 2000? 2006. 2006. Was the, was the nomination. Which is kind of amazing that publishers were still 
throwing lavish parties, you know, is, and I mean, it doesn't seem that long ago, it's 10 years ago. But when we look at, um, at publishing numbers, especially in comics and much less so, of course, in, um, although not that much less so in, in literary publishing, but that the number that's considered successful now has dropped and dropped and dropped and dropped to the point that, like we talk about this in the show all the time, that the, you know, Spawn number one shipped something like 9 million copies. And these days, if you're selling 80,000 copies consistently, you're in the top 10. Right. And books, um, you know, there's different revenue streams, of course, and there's um, whether it's digital downloads or um, Kindles and anything aside from the um, the hard copies of the books, that success is, is seen in a very different way. And of course, divisions at publishers get smaller so that where maybe there was a, there might've been five people in the travel um, you know, editorial staff at a, a, not even like Random House, but like a smaller publisher that now that person might not just be the travel person. They might also be the food editor, you know, that, that things get smaller, but that, um, what's great is that having a success in that era before it started to, to kind of become a very different landscape, you understand that as things change, that you still get that appreciation for the work and the time before. And that gives you almost a leg up on having that piece of creation turn into a completely other thing. Mm -hmm. And I have to imagine that, um, that somebody has probably optioned, if not once, multiple times, um, the rights to House of Leaves. It's not for sale. Ah. <laughs> Yeah. Mugwai, not for sale. Not for sale. Hasn't been for sale. You know, I get tempted now and then. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it was just a, a decision I, I made way back. I, I, I said, it's probably freighted with all sorts of psychological reasons I haven't mm -hmm. unpacked. Um, but, you know, I said, if you want to, if you want to see the movie, you got to read the book. And I pretty much kept to that. You know, I, I do agree with Brett Easton Ellis, who's drawn this distinction between the empire world and the post-empire. And empire was classically what you're describing, lavish yeah. book parties. You know, we can think back on Truman Capote's at the Met. You know, yeah. there's just lavish tours. Even, you know, there's a there's a billboard outside for uh, Guns N' Roses coming to Dodger yeah. Stadium. And the fact that they're filling the stadium is sort of, I think, I mean, I, I don't know what the ticket sales are like, but it's still an appeal to to nostalgia. Remember yeah. when there were these huge rock and roll shows, yeah. you know, and and maybe they can do that. We'll see. But at the same time, as you just pointed out correctly, those days of those particular types of of tours and and sort of nat nationally galvanizing um cultural events, at least as they were framed by a certain set of magazines, a certain set of radio stations, a mm -hmm. certain set of television stations, has really passed. And yeah. so now it is a different type of, of influence, a different type of numbers. But it's still, you know, there's still enormously successful people who are now are on Snapchat or yeah. who are doing Vines or, you know, and so the world is shifting. The question is, how much of it is a shell game, you know, that's basically where the P is still that pristine narrative that somehow gets at something that 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 rings throughout various times. And I think that is the one thing about House of Leaves that I could never have predicted mm -hmm. is that, you know, it was it was I think it was slated maybe they were going to print 10,000 copies in the beginning yeah. and they really couldn't imagine anyone but grad students reading it because it, it had this, you know, Weight and heft to it. Weight and heft. It had a certain academic language yeah. that was part of it. It had a, you know, these sort of like mental twists that you had to put your mind through. And so they were very surprised when, you know, younger people were able to read yeah. it. And now you have a new generation, which is very surprising, reading it. Yeah. And what is it that they're seeing? You know, and I have I have my theories, but... As I've said before, I'm very much like the parent mm -hmm. and uh, I'm happy that my kid's grown up and is making a lot of new friends, but I also like to stay, 
you know, away a little because, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, hey, man, your dad's around. It's such a bummer. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned Brad Easton Ellis. Right. And um, yesterday, I think, was the last day of his exhibition over at Gagosian. That's right. And it's um, giant text pieces of pieces of a story that he was writing um, against these stock photos that he picked up. Um, and blew up to billboard size practically. Right, with and, the artist Alex Israel. Yeah, right, yeah. And, and yeah, Alex's stuff is is also upstairs in a, in a different room. And he's got the heads that were over at the Huntington Library. And so it was kind of nice to see the other pieces that are of that style at Gagosian in a fine art gallery. And Brett's stuff is is a statement about Hollywood via the most Hollywood of statements, the billboard. Mm-hmm. And through the text, and he hired... The um, the scenics from the Warner Brothers lot to paint the lettering to hand do the lettering on top of these found photos of Los Angeles, and so you talk about the shell game, and it's like for someone like Brett, who's certainly had had his 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 first great success um, in the very middle of the era in which he was kind of writing about, you know, with um, you know, less than zero, and sure. you know, the cocaine driven nineteen eighties of Los Angeles. And having that made into a film that some people absolutely love and other people absolutely hate, which I think was pretty similar to the reception that his book got. Mm-hmm. And he's able to, he bounces back with American Psycho, another incredibly polarizing work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, one of the criticisms I remember of that era and being somebody who's a, a really big horror fan at that time the um the writing was hard to get used to and at first it, we considered you know that analogy of that's typing not writing that there was reviews in, within the writing that seemed like a cheat and it was actually really effective at getting inside the character's head which i think missed the point of people that were looking for another less than zero sure and what i've seen with with Brady Sinellis is this perennial ability to completely reinvent himself for new media and so by doing this show Echagosian, it sort of opens up, you know, that conversation about, well, writing is art, words are art, your books are, are very much uh, designed in a way that makes them an art object as much as an enjoyable literary read. And so it's, it's easy to imagine that that could become a jump off point for you at some point that you could start doing whether or not it's a Kagosian or whether it's just like, you know what, instead of doing graffiti, I'm going to buy 17 billboards in various cities and I'm just going to put writing on them. Sure. You know, it was, there was a, there was an article recently on, um, American Psycho, the musical, which is opening on Broadway. <laughs> which I wasn't aware of. And, uh, and, and in it, they, they, they describe, uh, American Psycho is an experimental novel. And I actually, mm-hmm. I, I liked that tag for that book because you're right. It, it was an incredibly polarizing, you know, experience. Norman Mailer defended it. Mm-hmm. Other people basically said it was, it was worth nothing. People that I know personally who weren't um, literary, who weren't great readers, but had gone off to work at J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley identified with the book because yeah. as as metaphoric as the violence was, this sort of obsession over suit ties and sorbets and business cards very much kind of kind of represented the the inherent kind of aggression and violence that was sort of a turbulence yeah. beneath that world. And and they felt a real kind of identification with that. So I almost wonder if we could look in a different way now at the word experimental, that experimental is perhaps maybe a little more um, accurate when it comes to what we call artistic. Because artistic yeah. can kind of fuzz out to the point that we don't really know what it is. But it seems that that which is experimental is that which is, as much as it's part of the conversation nationally mm-hmm. or internationally, it also stands outside of the conversation. Yeah. So that there is a part of it that as much as it's participating in this dialogue of events and analyses is also well outside of it. And um, 
And I don't know. I think that's probably a direction that I'm continuing to move in. As, as familiar as the familiar is with these three volumes, mm-hmm. it's also inherently strange. You know, I mean, Sonny Liu might be able to, you know, look at the at the at the Singapore chapters and yeah. sort of understand what the what the language is doing. But mm-hmm. for someone else, it'll be extremely strange. And yet, for someone you know who's who's gone to the Kennedy School and is and is part of sort of the political Middle Eastern dialogue, hearing a bit of Arabic is the same as hearing, you know, a grocery list being yeah. sung out. And yet to someone else, it's a threat on an airplane that requires a Berkeley student to be thrown off because he said, inshallah, you know. Yeah. So I think the the my engagement and I think those writers that I admire or artists for that matter are constantly sort of addressing that which is familiar, making it strange or making that which is strange become more familiar Mm -hmm. because these are sort of potent, um, they're potent drives to how we make decisions and how we exclude things or bias ourselves against things or how we include them. You know, I felt and I was, I didn't get a chance to read all three volumes in the, in the time that we were able to, um, to know that we were booking you and having you on the show. And I I did read quite a bit. He was given actually 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But what I did notice in, um, in looking through, I read quite a bit of, of volume one is what struck me about the color coding and the indexing. And it's, it's an interesting presentation again on the way that uh, the story is being unfolded by telling, um, um, almost like these single serving size vignettes that become part of a bigger whole really reminded me of Kurt Vonnegut Mm -hmm. and that you could read a Kurt Vonnegut book and he would have a character that would talk about 27 different ideas he had for um, a screenplay. And every one of them, you're like, I hope the book is about this. And then you get, you hit the next one. It's like, I hope the book is about this. And you'd go through list after list after list and vignette after vignette and even down to epigrams at a certain point and realize that they are part of this much richer uh, tapestry Mm -hmm. of ideas united by a gifted writer who has the ability to change narrative voice. And that's the most difficult thing because a lot of writers who are, a lot of writers are trying to nail a single voice. And so they'll they'll start with with the idea, they, they work on their outline, they put together their book, they've got it all, all ready to go, they hand it off to the editor and they get back a ton of, of red line from their editor that says, you, you lost your voice here and it became this other thing. Do you want to go back and try and pick up at this other point, rewrite these chapters to make more, to unify it? And I would, I'd have to believe that whoever your editor is knows not to do that and that it's best because you're it's, able to completely jump around. Yeah. It's like, no, no, this sounds too much like you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting because I think the, um, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm probably more overtly against is the, is this notion of the monolithic voice. Like mm-hmm. in some ways we, we're all a bunch of, of, you know, of speakers whose vocal cords have been bound like little Chinese feet, you know, yeah. that there's a, that there's, that, that that we're told in a way that's subtle and, you know, unconscious um, how we have to speak, yeah. you know? And I think, I think there's, there's, there's a comfort in hearing a great voice because that voice tends to unify all the stories around us. It tends to make sense of the world. Like mm-hmm. through a certain kind of speech that maybe is driven by hate, it seems to organize all the things that you're frustrated with. Yeah. Or a certain speech that's inspirational can organize all the all the things that matter to you. Yeah. But go out and just sit and listen to the world and we realize there's a bunch of different voices. There are a bunch of different accents. There's a bunch of different languages and strangeness. And what the familiar begins to composite and it's rooted in, you know, the the world of House of Leaves and that we had the voice of Zampano. We had the Mm -hmm. voice of Johnny Truant. We had the voice of Pelafina. You know, in Only Revolutions, we have the voice of of Sam and Haley, the voice of history. Um, And in this book, we have, you know, we have everything from a Turkish detective to an Armenian cab driver to a, you know, a a 12-year-old girl who's suffering from epilepsy to, you know, 
people that are entering, you know, at this the studio at this moment, we could hear the rumbling of a door open. You know, it's great. I mean, these are the sounds that intrude, right? Yeah, it's, you know? it's like a radio drama. You know, so you have all of that. And yet at the same time, as, as difficult at first as it is to sort of switch between them, then it begins to accelerate. So yeah. the experience as you move into the later volumes is you suddenly go, oh, that's Anther. Yeah. Oh, that's Luther. Oh, I know where I'm at. And it begins to orient you. And like you said with Vonnegut, Vonnegut was great with these sort of like these tiny themes that were kind of woven through one novel or many novels. Mm -hmm. But it's also in, you know, in the service of television series, which I've said before, you know, in, in very much like, you know, the first five volumes of the familiar Mark season one. Mm -hmm. But it's also like long form, you know, comic books or graphic novels. Yeah. You know, it's like you become used to it. At first, it's kind of difficult to read. And mm -hmm. then you actually move very quickly through it. Like where do you dive in? You know, a series that's been going on for 20 years, which became a big problem, you know, at, at a certain point and, and kind of coincided with the collapse of the comic book market was that, you know, you couldn't just dive into the X-Men. Right. Like there was a lot of backstory and you had to be familiar with it or you wouldn't get it and you just have to pass it along. But what's interesting is that what you're talking about and having that versatility of voice, um, if you become accustomed to that, and then you go back and read somebody like Norman Mailer, someone who's a great writer. Every character in Norman Mailer is Norman Mailer. Right. You know, I mean, there, there is not, they go all the way from A to A minus. You know, like there's no rest of the alphabet and, and you kind of, you're used to that and you like the way that he wordsmiths and you like that kind of macho thing and, and that gets you through the book. And there's a lot of writers like that. When you mention, you know, talking about comic books, it's like, well, wow, that's that's the one area where every character has to have a completely different voice almost all the time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is true. It's like they're they're great writers. Like, you you know, you can just, you know, fall in love with the music of, say, David Mamet, you know. Yeah. But you can also then begin to hear David Mamet in every single character. And yeah. you're kind of like, oh, come on, you know. Yeah, but he, it's so many, so many times, you know, even in, in a, you know, Spartan, there's that great line, have you ever killed anybody? I hurt somebody's feelings once. And you're like, oh, that's Mamet. That is, that's just classic David Mamet. You know, it's, you know, the, the story about, um, uh, not a Mamet story, apparently a true story. And I heard it from uh, Sam Fuller a long time ago, but um, talking about Victor Hugo and, um, and who was it? Maybe uh, the writer of the Three Musketeers, and they were contemporaries, and they knew each other, and they they you know they meet in the in the quad, and they you know they embrace each other as as men did, and then they walk away from each other, and and um, you know you've got one guy saying I hate him, you know if if I only had his money, and the other guy walks away says I hate him if I only had his talent, <laughs> you know, and, and they walk away, and you just you have that kind of that voice, that voice is, is very similar to that mammoth voice. But I'm, I'm going to take a really quick break here to... Um, oh, wait, wait. There, I, that reminds me just of a great Victor Hugo quote. Which absolutely. Is not apropos of anything we're talking about, except maybe my obsession with cats in the familiar. Victor Hugo said, the reason that God created the cat was so that man could pet the tiger. <sighs> Jeez, how do you come back from a break after this? Okay, well, well hopefully you will. Um, we're going to take a quick break to hear from, uh, from one of our sponsors, and uh, we'll be right back uh, very shortly with uh, Mark Danieluski. Small note, watch, watch hitting the tables. Guys. Yeah, right, right. I heard it. So Thank I just loot crate one right now. Uh, you want to do, do it as a live read. So, okay. Um, so come back and then do it. Okay. Or do it later it's up to you and what was the other thing that you wanted me to do oh, that, uh, um... mention this code and get 11 percent off at milka okay but you again you can do that anywhere you want right okay so we'll just come back Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and we have with us today Mark Danieluski, uh, award-winning writer, fascinating guy, talking about a lot of great stuff here. And um, I wanted to kind of um, – we're, of course, recording here at, at Meltdown Comics. And um, before I forget, I have to remind everybody that um, if you use the code – Honeysuckle and pain, uh, you can get 11% off. Um, and how long does that last, Mason? Indefinitely. Yeah, Perfect. But you have to say it, say it in person. 
And you have to say it in person to the, the, the clerk at the store when they're ringing you up for your comics. Um, we are, of course, grabbing Honeysuckle and Pain as the, um, the subtitle to the third volume of The Familiar, the um, series that uh, Mark is writing now, and that um, is possibly going to be a 27-volume serial novel, a decade-long project. And these are not small books. I mean, when I first was seeing 27-volume serial novel, I'm thinking like, Oh, like chapbooks, you know, like 88 pages, 100 pages, 120 pages. Uh, these are enormous, um, a treat for anybody to pick up and read. And the latest volume is, I mean, you're getting your money's worth and it's incredible. And using the same types of um, new literary devices, um, which I think the first time I'd ever heard the term ergodic was about your writing um, and ergodic as I understand it is um, literature that's not defined by the medium but the way in which the text functions to tell the story and that's something that was much more akin to the experimental filmmaking of say like Godard's Weekend you know where you use these words and now you see them in um, in some other French cinema and especially with like um, oh the the director of Irreversible and um, I can't believe I can't think of his name right now. Anyways, but um, it, it's become a device that was parodied a bit in the in the early '90s by using uh, large text to interrupt the the flow of the narrative. But um, as you use it in the books, it helps suit the voice of the characters, the the situations, and it just really makes a much more enjoyable reading experience. But it also makes you realize, and this is maybe maybe the um, the cheat aspect of being able to do this, is that you can have a big book and you can tear through it. Absolutely. Yeah. As each, each volume is 880 pages, but it's probably around 250 pages in terms of just the amount of text that you have to read. And that makes you feel like an accomplished reader, which makes everybody feel good. So I think you've right. tapped into something psychologically here. We'll see. I mean, <laughs> you know, like you, like you mentioned, it's uh, it's a decade long project, but it ultimately like a television series will be dependent on the readership. Will yeah. readers turn out for this? Will do they want to embrace something that's that's difficult that that requires a certain amount of patience but that, you know, that offers rewards over a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I first moved to Los Angeles, I was uh I got a job writing on television for one week uh, and I was paid $900 a week, which was more money than I had ever seen. Yeah. And it was a show called Trial Watch. And I think Robin Leach was on it. And it was wow. basically like bad kind of legal copy. And uh, it was kind of wonderful because the the writer who was, you know, who sort of took me under his wing was Stanley Ross, who'd mm -hmm. written for Batman and, you know, yeah. Get Smart, a bunch of classic shows. And um, – but I realized it was just kind of poisonous and I, and I, and I quit and I yeah. just went back to like, you know. Is this that era of like divorce court, like the reenactment yes. court shows? This was 1990, 91, yeah. right in there. But I remember the producer was sort of surprised that I had decided not to continue and he took me out for lunch and he said, well, you know, you're young. So you tell me what you see is the future of television. And I said, you know what? A series should be more like a novel so that each episode isn't self-contained, but mm -hmm. it's actually just a chapter in a novel. He said, that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> and now that's all that's Everything, happening. Everything, yeah. yeah. The, the, the syndication rules. Um, and up until recently, you know, the syndication rules were, were the thing. It was like it was easier to get syndication if you had self-contained stories, which is why Dick Wolf is a gazillionaire, mm -hmm. you know, and all the law and orders. But now with the, the delivery medium changing for television so exactly. that, that now you can have a full series and do like we do, which is watch the entire series in a night that's and right. wander on the, the next beginning. day. You, yeah. You're not stuck in the middle. And I think that's one of the things that's precarious about this project is that you really have to start with volume one. Yeah. However, the rewards are greater because yeah. you're not you're, you're not sort of, sort of limited to this, this form that that seems like it 
like it's natural, like, mm -hmm. but but it's completely created by the technology that was in terms of distribution or printing machines or whatnot. And now sort of it's, we're expanding that. And if people want to go on that journey, then they're going to be rewarded with an experience they've never had before. But I also think this is true too, in that if someone were to pick up volume three and start reading it, one of the great appeals of the way that you write is the way that you write. Thanks. You know, that you you read it and you'd be like, this is the third one? I mean, clearly these all have numbers on them, so I don't think someone's going to go and pick up the third volume. But if it were sitting in a doctor's office and they were to pick it up and start reading it, I think that that would be enough of a hook that they would go back and read one and two. And I think you can you know, read it that way. And I'm, thank you for saying that. I mean, my fiance says the same thing. She says like, are you dreaming? Like who in life ever gets to start at the beginning? Yeah. You, it, whether it's a relationship, a job, you're always jumping in in the middle. Yeah. So if you're that spirit, then you're going to be fine. Like you can just start off at three and start figuring out things. That's how I watch a lot of series. Too. Yeah. And then I'm like, if this is good, I'll, I'll go, go back. back. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how I, what I did with Game of Thrones, actually. Yeah. That I remember watching that first episode and not loving it and just not following up with it and I think I got rid of cable at that time and then when I got cable back um, I watched the first episode of season two which was shocking and then I immediately went back I, I stopped there went back and watched the first season and caught up and you know uh, we're recording this the day after Game of Thrones um, came back to, to HBO last night so um, it's relevant <laughs> but um, I also want to talk about you know the you do a lot of other things too, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's amazing that you've, you've had the, the ability to, and this is, this is not just a, not to say that it's just a, a great character trait to be able to um, protect something that you've created and that you care about so that you're, you're like, no, no one's going to do House of Leaves. This is this thing that I want it to be its own thing, but that You've had opportunities, and, and your sister's a recording artist. So um, Mark's sister Anne is is performed as Poe for a very long time, still does, mm -hmm. and um, had a, a, a big hit here on K-Rock, you know, um, a, a few years back with Angry Johnny. Um, her ability to kind of crowdsource her fandom before crowdsourcing as just being savvy with um, social media as it was a new thing was something that, labels started to pay attention to you and kind of build out their their media plan with like looking at her success mm -hmm. and other people um who were were kind of like really going direct to the fan base and building up this this enormous following and you had the opportunity to work with her on haunted that's right yeah and so to have something which starts as a literary device and opens up into a larger than a self-contained thing and then becomes another media is gives you another level of perspective to how something can be told and seen and felt and then that can lead you back into how you follow back up in the original medium right because you know in the end there has to be a form mm -hmm. um we haven't quite learned how to how to do without form completely. <laughs> jazz. But, <laughs> but jazz is, is its own form. I think maybe death is its only place where you <laughs> yes. kind of, you exceed form. And that remains a mystery. It's, right. a, it's a literary text that we still can't read. We can only speculate <laughs> yeah. about. But I think, um, I think the experience with Haunted, uh, as much as Haunted was an influence on House of Leaves and House of Leaves an influence on Haunted, and, you know, and as much as that these, these, these two works sort of solidified one as a as a CD album and another as a, as a novel. Mm -hmm. the um, the The great experience for me was to be exposed to my sister's great genius, her mm -hmm. her her great insights, her the quality of her ear and her her instincts. And you know, as anyone knows who's creative, when you're in the company of someone else who's creative, whether they've succeeded or not is beside the point. Right. You're, you're with someone who, who knows how to put things together and take them into a different place and open up a, a new vantage point on something that you always took for granted. Peers with different strengths. Exactly. And so I think that's the thing that you want to kind of cultivate and, mm. and gather around and, and finally it begins to fulminate and then you are given that moment where you have to say, am I going to allow this to take a form? Right. And that it is its own process. And it's a very, it's a very scary, sad, 
process in a way because you you kind of have to kill something when you put it on the page or make, limit it into a three-minute song. But if you do it right, it does come – there is this resurrection right. that takes place at the end. But it is a harrowing experience and ultimately it can only be done by – one person. It's a. It, it's carried out. There is a solitude to it, no matter how many people are involved, and um, and I think that's the the thrill, and it's mm. also the you know it's it's what draws many people to attempt that, yeah, and also stops many people from doing it. And not every salon is an exquisite corpse, right. and so that by it's it's wonderful to have a salon within a single bloodline where you've got two or three creative people that can all feed off of each other in some cases where it's you know if it's a parent who is who brings an appreciation of film that then becomes part of what you recognize in the world whether or not you get to collaborate with them you're always collaborating with them because you grew up in that environment and have a sibling who has a different discipline and um, very gifted at that discipline that to be able to have collaborators that you're already that close to is is definitely got to be a bonus. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Total advantage. Are you kidding? My sister did wonders for my writing. You know, yeah. I mean, it's just the, you know, I mean, even things that aren't direct. I mean, I, I talk a lot about this um, with myself, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Not actually with others, but the, one of those conversations in my head is that I feel it's very important to and this may be weird coming from a writer it's 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 important it's less important to say than to actually enact mm -hmm. so that it's one thing to talk about race but if you're talking about race within a sort of given format you're actually kind of duplicating the same kind of lingual music that kind of creates kind of cages that topic. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're creating something which is visually arresting and 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 disturbing potentially, you know, even though it may have nothing to do overtly with race, mm -hmm. it begins to tap more deeply into that mechanism of how we actually engage the world. It's not what we just tell ourselves, that part of our voice, but we're looking at it going, I mean, people when they read House of Leaves for the first time were like they were horrified that a word was blue. They mm -hmm. thought, oh, that's weird. Oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Or it's a typo. You know, like literally yeah. there was a kind of a revulsion because it wasn't familiar. Even now, 16 years later, um, I did a um, – I wrote a preface for Bachelard's Poetics of Space. And, you know, they had a cover back, a, a color cover and, and back. And they put my little bio and they said House of Leaves. But they wouldn't put House in blue. Like, I mean, it's a full color printing, right? you know, and they're like, no, 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 everyone will think it's a typo. Like, there's still that kind of aversion to something that's, I mean, we're in Dr. Seuss land, you know? It's a visual onomatopoeia. The, um, and, you know, you addressed a little bit of, you know, that, you know, what's, what's unsaid. And so there's that silent onomatopoeic thing right. where there's, there's clearly your you're inspiring a certain level of sound by use of certain words and um and not even in the way that say you know Edgar Allan Poe and the bells but that you can drop little things here and there if you have the ability to use color to swap out for sound to encourage psychologically a reaction to something that's being read certainly if you read the words um, slaughterhouse in red right. it gives a more intense feeling of the understanding of that word than if it's just in black type and on white page and then when it suddenly changes to green then yeah. what, what, what's, what's a green it? slaughterhouse right, and exactly. so you have to kind of open up the back of your head to this other idea and then you second guess everything you've already read which makes further reading awesome I mean it just gives you this ability to dismiss everything you thought you knew about something and if you can do that with color then by all means you know like why not it's it's amazing to me i understand it too I, as a publisher and i've published like 40 books art books that there's certain things that you look at and say people are going to think that that's a mistake and in the medium of in visual media books then it's a bigger deal, I think, or it should be a bigger deal than it is than, than reading words on a page that I would think that the second it was inexpensive enough 
and this would go back to magazines, I guess, that you could print words in different colors. I'm amazed that people didn't hop on that like it was the wheel. I think they're starting, I'd like to think. Yeah, 16 know? years I mean, later. 16 years later, it's 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 a process. I think I think part of it is that for a while it was dominated by advertising and pop art so yes. that it seemed kind of a, you know, a sort of a sporadic and not consistent use of color and therefore could become kitschy. Right, and it kind of diminished it whereas you know, as as you and I have discussed, there's a, there's a lot of rigor to why house is blue, why O's are green and gold and mm-hmm. only revolutions. And here, you know, things are very specifically color coded so that you can immediately know that you're in a Xanther chapter or yeah. in an Anwar chapter or in a stair. And you kind of the, – the fonts and the design orient you to their psychology, their space and how you view them. And so when they begin to have these subtle shifts, your understanding of them – begins to change. Even yeah. if you're not consciously aware of it, you're, you're a sense that, wait a minute, something's a little off here. Why yeah. isn't that tag there? Or why isn't it? And then begins to sort of have a, allow you for a, a greater emotional reading to take place. And what's interesting too is that um, generally speaking, paper isn't actually white. Mm-hmm. So you can print white on white, really mess with people's heads. We do actually. Yes. We add, we add a color <laughs> and that means when we, we – when there are certain interruptions, exactly, we can pull those – we can pull those hues back and allow a different color to emerge. Yeah. And that frames the, the conversation in a very different way. Yeah. And so that in some ways is, is more enacting the kind of instinctual relation we have to, to color and to sound and to you know, different accents, different skin hues, whatever it is, all of those kind of orientations can actually be demonstrated in a way that's, I think is more significant than sort of just you know, tipping your hat to certain themes in a form that's mm. literally black and white. Right, right. Now, the other thing that you you touched on, and, and we've we've mentioned it a couple of times now, so I, I think it's we have to talk about it. Um, Only Revolutions became a collaboration after the fact with a relatively well known rock band. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the word collaboration, though. I'm definitely friends with Simon um, Neal. It was a. It was just a. It was just one of these great moments where I was driving in in. You know, in the middle of L.A. at night and suddenly on K-Rock, uh, they were playing Biffy Clyro's, yeah. you know, Mountains, I think was yeah. a song from the 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 CD titled Only Revolutions. Yeah. And then there was this thought, was it a coincidence? No, Simon Neal was a, you know, was a big reader of my work. And then, uh, you know, I had that awful moment where I went to the Troubadour to hear them and I'm like, oh, what if they're just terrible? <laughs> yeah. And they're awesome. They're, they're great. Just, they're, yeah. I mean, an incredible show. If anyone, if you can go and see them, this is what, this is what everyone is wants to mm. see when they go see Guns N' Roses at, at, at Dodger Stadium. It's like there, there is that, you know, it's that still vibrant vit- vitality that they, they have. And um, I love that song, Biblical. I, I, I listen. I've got that in probably three different playlists yeah. that I've that I've just put it in different places in different contexts with different songs. But you did end up performing with them. We did. Yeah, we did a wonderful thing at. Uh, it was. Um, oh, what was the name of the the bootleg theater? Actually, yep. uh, we we did a kind of a, a mix of the acoustic versions of the song and some readings. He yeah. did some readings, and what was wonderful is actually we were raising money for um, tattoo removal. For gang members, so it was wow, this yeah. weird sort of thing about yeah the, for homeboy industries, exactly. yeah, yeah. So that the you know people who really have to want to reinvent themselves have a have to sort of remove their sort of their yeah. taggings on themselves, and it was a it was a great experience, and I'm still in touch with Simon, and you know it's he just has a new book. I, a new book, a new CD out called Ellipses. Freudian uh, slip. Um, and as you know, it's interesting because the ellipses is a, sort of a big thing in, in the familiar. We do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the, um, you know, we've talked about the, you know, the footnoting, the layout, the style, and um, what we haven't really talked about yet, and it's especially true in these books, is the meta footnoting, that there's stuff that seems like it's fictional because it's part of the book, but it's real, and it has um, ramifications in your actual real life that lead back, which um, is, again, still a format that people are, are really not – it hasn't opened up. Like People are playing with it a little bit, the, the notion of, of metafiction, but that um, it's still like the, the guidelines for what 
the chances people are taking in a literary medium seem to be just as narrow outside of a handful of writers like yourself and like Thomas Pynchon and, and, um, and, and a handful of other people, but that I'm amazed. And I know somebody who created, like in House of Leaves, a fictional filmmaker and started bringing this fictional filmmaker's films to festivals where they clearly had no idea that it was not genuine and a whole review process about these these projects have hit like kind of mainstream film magazines and he reached a point where I was like well now I don't know what to do like I'm not sure how many people know and if I'm supposed to tell them not to let the cat out of the bag at a certain point but you've been really open about the fact that the um that the notes don't just relate to stuff that's in the books but also relate to you know personally biographical things mm-hmm. well that's a that's a tough one to tackle. I mean, it's certainly. I think maybe I'll answer it more generally. Um, just like your your, I think your previous guest, Sonny Liu, right? Is his entire graphic novel is about an artist who in Singapore yeah, who doesn't, doesn't exist. exist. Yeah. He's created it. Um, I think the thing that I admire about Sonny Liu, and I think it's a sort of a project I admire really with all novelists. Um, is that willingness to say that this is fiction. Mm-hmm. So I'm not telling you it's a memoir. I'm not telling you it's a true story. Right. I'm telling you it's not a true story. Right. And yet, once you know that, allow you to enter, you know, the experience of a greater kind of veracity. And I think what 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 literature in general addresses is this private experience of that that we know is imagined, that we know that is made up. Mm-hmm. And yet has enormous kind of influence on our lives. You know, it affects the the real the very real choices we mm-hmm. make. And I think it's one of the the great projects of of literature in particular is that by continuing to cultivate a active and a strong mind, a strong imagination, it enables us to engage more fully the round the world we're privileged to be part of. We cannot you cannot empathize with another person, another animal, another world if you cannot imagine who they are. Right. And the only way you can do that is to practice imagining. And it's the one of the things that pictures actually deprive you of. They almost give you too much. They don't allow you to actually be a participant in that. Um, they're like the bad teachers that tell you the answer. They ask you the question, <laughs> tell you the yeah. answer. You got to work a little, but the result is it may actually enable you to be more intimate with another person, with a you know, with another situation. And um, so, I will always be a defender with the, of the power of fiction in that regard. And the context too is it's interesting because we see it in film a lot, you know. And I think it, Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. you know, that um, one of the things that I think audiences most connected to in that story was the integration of actual historical footage sure. with this obvious work of fiction and that it's something that we kind of take for granted and to a lesser extent and a less jarring extent I think you'll see in science fiction films footage of presidents talking and addressing and they're isolated from you know completely unrelated events and you know maybe they license the footage from CNN and they and they pop it into their movies and it gives you this relatable real world thing that allows you to make that fantastic jump with the filmmakers in a way that's relatable because oh real people are in this right yeah i mean at the same time it sort of also creates these situations where you look at these real things or supposed real things and then you begin to doubt you know the entire narrative right and um you know, the, the Tarantino actually is very playful with that. If you look at Inglorious Bastards, yeah. it has all the sort of standard tropes for World War II, yeah. and yet it kind of leads you along something that makes sort of sense or could be until it's actually, you know, just wildly rewriting history yes. at the very end the of it. The most you know? ridiculous possible, right. you know, But there's a extreme. wonderful kind of like, you know, expansion yeah. of the imagination at that point. The counterfactual. Right. And, yes. and I think I think the other thing is, is that there's there people are afraid of this this notion of doubt, which mm-hmm. is really what we're heading towards is like at a certain point, do you, you know, deracinate everything to the point that you can't even believe any of it. But the, but I think the more that we're able to doubt without necessarily coloring that doubt with depression or nihilism or anarchy, 
the more we're really able to accept, you know, this reality that we're privileged enough to sort of move through because we're still our experience of everything around us, even our experience, you and me right now mm -hmm. is mitigated by these tiny little retinas and this little raisin for a brain mm -hmm. that's doing its best to process an enormous amount of variables that we're swimming with all sorts of possibilities. And so if we could just call a little into question our mechanisms of perception, we might actually be able to intuit this, this larger grandeur that we're all part of. Kind of brings us back to Aldous Huxley. Always. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm also going to ask you about, um, about 50 Year Sword. And um, it's funny because when, when you were working on, um, on that at Red Cat, and I think it, it had played and then it came back, and there were postcards I think that were made for the fly Cronenberg's the fly that were at the same time and somehow and this is the way that my mind works is that I saw these two things and immediately thought they were the same thing and I so I, I've remixed so many things from my past that I think are the exact same thing like when I first saw um Neil Diamond's Hot August Night the album cover I was listening to a Kiss record at my next door neighbor's house and I heard Gene Simmons singing like God of Thunder or something and looked at this picture of, of Neil Diamond and that, and that album cover, he's like tough, you know, he looks like a badass. You don't expect it to be like, you know, candy, candy, you know, and you, you really expect it to be kind of God of Thunder. And so I thought that was a Kiss record for years. <laughs> like I swore that, that, that he had the Gene Simmons makeup on, like I remixed my perception of things in my own head and made it so. And so I became convinced that either you had written the opera of The Fly for David Cronenberg or that he had directed 50 Year Sword or something in, in that, or that he had directed House of Leaves as an opera. And I swore by this for like for a very long time. I'm like, no, I, I remember this. I can't find it. I can't find it. And then I found as I was preparing for, um, for stuff um, for the show, the actual postcard that you know the Amundsen had made it wasn't Red Cat that I had season tickets that season for all the avant-garde classical stuff that was going on and you know John Adams and you know the types of things that they were doing with um with uh the then conductor um, who, who still plays every once in a while, but um, that they had become part of this stew that I had built together and imagined this other thing and of course now that that's not there I'm like, maybe that needs to exist. <laughs> I like it exists already in your yeah, head. It in existed. my head it exists. There was a Cronenberg version of uh, of the 50-year sword. I yes. like it, you know. We were uh we were lucky enough to do um you know three uh three years at Red Cat. Uh, yeah. and that was a was a it was a great experience. And um but yeah. And you worked on the Dorita documentary. Yes, uh, that was those were in the early days, sort of around when I was a, a, a apprentice plumber. I was uh, called in to be a sound guy on the uh, on a Derrida documentary, and we went to Chicago and filmed him in New York City. And you know, I of course was exposed to a lot of his work and a lot of the you know the the sort of Yale critics when I was in, at school. Um, but it was fun to sort of sort of you know you know, follow around with a wireless mic, this uh, sort of great French um, philosopher yeah. and uh, certainly an influence. Um, but I think there's, you know, there, there are a lot of, um, you know, a lot of sort of formal academics who've influenced my work, whether it was, was Derrida or earlier, you know, um, philosophers. Agamben has been more um, recent and then the uh, sort of the more, the more ecology minded um philosophers have become more and more interesting to me. I think mm -hmm. I think what what becomes fascinating and it's again something that I that I'm addressing in the familiar is how we how we without realizing it how we isolate ourselves at the expense of the intelligence of co of context. And I can simplify sure. that by by talking about um Peter Matheson's The Snow Leopard. He has this great description as he's like trying to get a glimpse of the snow leopard of describing how the snow leopard up in the mountains as it's moving along has this enormous tail mm -hmm. right and it it is so sensitive to its surroundings that it can uh, it can uh, it can step where there's some loose stones and 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 
displace a stone and it'll be aware of it that it'll actually reach out, stop the stone from falling and then bring it back into place. To not disturb its environment. And so the animals around or below won't hear him. Yeah. So when you go to the zoo, you look at a snow leopard and you're convinced, you, you know, you can see people clamoring at the bars and they can get, they can get right there and see yeah. it. But really to experience a snow leopard is to be moving along, of, you know, the face of a cliff and yeah. not hear a stone falling. Yeah. And that's the presence of a snow leopard moving. Right. Well, that's, that's just about the best place I can think of to end this discussion, although I could go on for another five hours. The, um, I want to make sure, again, to, um, to mention the titles of, of the three books in the Familiar series. And you've got One Rainy Day in May is the first volume. Volume one, yes. And volume two is Into the Forest. That's correct. And volume three, which, when is the street? I think in June. In June. Yeah, early June. It's uh, Honeysuckle and Pain. And apparently, right, if you say Honeysuckle Suckle and pain, pain here, you get 11% off. Yep, at Meltdown Comics and Collectibles. So you want to be sure and do that. But you also really want to be sure to pick up Mark's books and read them because if you're unfamiliar, you're in for a real treat. I mean, there are people that, you know, I, I envy them. I envy their discovery of reading the way that you write because – it's going to affect the way they read other things. And that's a whole other different level of, of context. And, and you can talk about literary tradition and how you can change things up. And that punk aspect of the guys that you were working with as a plumber's apprentice really, really kind of comes to light in the way that you're presenting your ideas because it is like punk rock a very large disruption to status quo in the most creative and I think I mean, it's funny because some people, I still don't know that, that House of Leaves is a horror novel. Mm -hmm. like, and, and that was the pitch that, that, I, that I ostensibly first picked it up. It was, it was nominated for a Stoker. I went and I sought it out and I read it. And I, and I felt like, and I'm a huge horror fan. I'm not someone who's like dismissive of, of horror films the way that, say, Linda Blair will say that The Exorcist isn't a horror film, it's a drama. And, and I can get her point of view. But honestly, I think that it's so transcended genre that it is its own thing that if you want to read House of Leaves as a horror novel, you'll be incredibly pleasantly surprised that it's unlike any other horror novel you've ever read. And if you don't like horror, read House of Leaves because it might make you love horror. I mean, it sort of works on both ends of it. And then with what you've done with The Familiar, you've kind of really opened up a, I mean, a Pandora's box of ideas that operate in a specific direction that you are orchestrating without us really being aware of what it is yet. And it's just a really, really fun ride. And I hope that people are going to really jump on this and, and really get behind it. I would love to see it go to all 27 volumes. If you feel that it's going to go to 27 volumes and maybe this is, you know, the MacGuffin, it's like, he's only going to write 10, but he said 27. So you don't expect it's going to end at a certain time, but I, I hope it goes on for a really long time. And I really look forward um, to, to getting through this third volume um, as soon as I have a chance, which I can probably do in about a day and a half, because while it's very thick, it's really easy to read. Well, thank you very much. I will, uh, I'll be reading at Skylight Bookstores in uh, June. Excellent. I, I don't tour that much because uh, I have limited time, as you know. I yep. have to, I'm going to get back to write. Get back to volume four. Uh, but it would be, uh, be fun to see you there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Mark. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in to Pod Sequentials. I, of course, have been Matt Kennedy. And I um, hope you will join us again soon.